Welcome to the Excellence in Enterprise podcast, where I reach out to people I do not know, engage with friends, all for the purpose of learning about them, learning about what they care about, why they care about what they're doing, what they're engaged with from across multiple different industries and multiple different vantage points and viewpoints, all for the purpose of increasing my personal knowledge and kind of thinking outside the box when it comes to my work, my professional career. I want to draw from those sources and I thought you might be interested in hearing as well. So I hope you will join me on this journey. You can find me on YouTube, on Spotify, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Feel free to reach out anytime. I'd love to engage with you. And I hope you enjoy this podcast interview um, engagement journey with me. Welcome back to episode six of the Excellence in Enterprise podcast. This is my friend, Michael Metacroft. He and I have known each other since, uh, well, technically since we were babies, though, of course, neither of us remember that. Our uh, mothers knew each other long before we came around. And so it has been a long journey, though an interesting one, because while we've known each other and been connected for a really long time, we haven't always been in like constant communication. And so it's been one of those, uh, from my perspective, one of those relationships and friendships that's like, you can relatively easily pick up kind of right where you left off. And that's kind of happened uh, recently because Micah went to Hillsdale College and I'll let him tell you more about this in his own words, but he went to Hillsdale College while I was at Patrick Henry College. And then he uh, was in the DC area for a little bit and then he moved to Chicago uh, to get his master's and I stayed in the DC area, but he's back in the DC area and he recently took on an interesting job. And one of the reasons that I wanted, or the, I guess the main reason, at least for, for this episode, that I wanted to bring Micah on is because he's been on an interesting uh, changing trajectory in kind of his professional career and how he's considered that and how he's kind of considered his role uh, towards his career and like what he wants to be doing. And I thought that would be helpful for all of us, uh, mostly because I too have had that struggle. I know what a struggle it can be for people that are kind of considering that. And I thought maybe he uh, could help us think through uh, or give us wisdom as to, you know, I don't know, mistakes not to make. And then, uh, you know, I think also then being a great example of a story of where it's okay to make changes as you go, which I think is one of the scary things that um, is typically one of the issues when people are considering making changes or uh, dealing with changing uh, priorities and changing interests over time. So Micah, to start us off, uh, why don't you give a little bit of a background kind of where you've come from and like where you, what you kind of got to prior to your changing trajectory. And then we can, you know, talk more about that uh, more specifically. Sure. I'll, I'll try to outline everything. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so yes, our mothers, let's see, I think your mother was my mother's maid of honor in my parents' wedding. So there's, there's the kind of the nature of that connection. And you're right. Um, I think we're both very intensely uh, present. Well, you're more intensely present, I think. I am a little more future focused, but you're uh, kind of present focused people. And so, yeah, when, when we, we tend to be where we are and uh, lose track of people when we're not <laughs> with them, but we get to pick things back up when we're with each other again. And that's been really a pleasure to do that again recently. And so, yes, so as you said, we knew each other growing up. Um, from the Pacific Northwest as well. If you guys don't know, Britain's from Oregon. I'm from Washington State. Um, it was about a kind of two and a half hour, three hour drive to visit each other or a couple few times as kids. Um, I went to Hillsdale College in Michigan where I studied history and minored in journalism. And after that, I kind of defaulted to being a, I wanted to, well, let's see. I had an undergrad thought that I would be an academic but I'd also thought that uh, I would be an actor and get involved in movie making. So there was a lot of things going on. And then I'd happened to uh, develop the only, you know, the only kind of professionally employable skills that I developed in college were journalism related ones. I had worked on the school paper for all four years of my undergrad experience. I'd really enjoyed being part of the journalism program. And that's where my internships had been and things like that. So I ended up defaulting to that and coming out to DC after a little intensive uh, kind of continued journalism education program that I did in Philadelphia the summer after graduating and bounced around a little bit. I uh, was briefly on your couch, Britain. Uh, <laughs> That's true. I actually that was, forgot about that. That was a good time. 
Um, I think I'm a pretty easy house guest, but you were very patient nonetheless uh, for a long time. Um, though I did help with with the rent. So that, this yeah, is true. That, that yeah. makes it which easier. was appreciated, you know. <laughs> uh, so that was I had kind of my nomadic. I was just trying to figure out if this journalism thing was going to work. It scared my brother off. He had initially been also planning to be a kind of journalist and now he's in business. So, that, you know, that was smart on his part. Uh, <laughs> so then I, my longest stint here in DC the first time was two years at the Washington Free Beacon as an associate, well, first assistant editor and then as an associate editor. And I would characterize that season as just trying to get to know the city and getting to know what was possible for a young person like me here in DC affiliated with conservative politics and also with kind of intellectual pretensions. And so that was a great perch from which to do that kind of exploration. Um, this is all pre-COVID, so it's you know kind of a lost world of, there was always a lecture to go to, there's always some sort of mixer almost every evening. And if you were the kind of person who enjoyed holding, uh, holding forth on random academic and, and kind of literary topics, there, DC was a great town to be in. Um, at a certain point, two things happened. I realized that the academy was still of interest to me and was trying to figure out if that was what I should do. And I was also beginning to grow a little frustrated with what felt like a very empty um, career trajectory that I was on. Uh, I was writing some stuff I was really proud of, but I tended to be writing for other writers. So it was a lot of book reviews and culture criticism and um, kind of arts and letters stuff. And I'm very, I, I still am proud of that stuff, but I think the career path that it seemed to be setting me up for felt super, not necessarily superficial because it was dealing with the, the deepest questions of you know human nature and um, truth and beauty and goodness, but I wasn't sure that it wasn't parasitic or something. And, and then there was something that I felt more honest about the academy. It was like, it was a bit of, if I was doing this anyway, perhaps I should go be a teacher and, and get the credential, the, the kind of the license to teach that is the PhD now. Um, there was also the feeling that I could get too comfortable too quickly. I was beginning to achieve not success, but you know, first and second promotions and things like that. And I uh, was doing pretty well for my age. And so there was certainly the feeling that I was about to cross some sort of invisible threshold in which going back to school would feel like too big of a jump, um, especially financially, but also just culturally. I, I, I think um, DC is definitely a town you specialize for. And the longer you're here, the more specialized you are for it. So yeah, I made my applications various places and I was very grateful in retrospect. At the time, I wasn't sure what to make of it um, to not make it into any of the PhD programs that I had hoped to enter if I was gonna study political theory. Uh, but I did receive an acceptance from a one-year master's program at the University of Chicago. Now, those are usually considered, for good reason, very expensive library cards or kind of cat, um, cash cows. You know, they're a way to fleece academic aspirants like myself. Um, I fortunately was blessed to receive enough um, funding through the school uh, to make it work, work and justify it. And I just really wanted to test the waters. And that seemed like a great opportunity, a one-year program get a master's degree out of it. So it seemed, seemed very feasible. And I was very grateful to, you know, I'm very glad I did it. So yeah, I went to the University of Chicago for a year studying technically the degrees, uh, the MA program in social sciences. And I wrote my thesis on and kind of focused my coursework on political theory. Um, so that was a mix of philosophy and international relations and a, a couple of other things, uh, essentially. And I went in probably 80% sure that I wanted to be an academic and I've departed now 80% sure I do not. So uh, I think about halfway through my time at Chicago, I sort of realized that 
the stakes felt even more made up in some sense. Um, despite the very, you know, the significance of what institution is doing in training the next generation, um, as a graduate student, it felt very artificial and detached from anything meaningful. Um, and there's some, there's some wild statistics about kind of like mental health in the academy and the number of graduate students who have serious mental health crises, anxiety issues. And I'd had friends who had told me about that who were in PhD programs and had said, oh, it's real. And like, I have, you know, low grade anxiety all the time or whatever. And I kind of thought, well, you're, you're sort of high strung. Like that's, that's, that's understandable. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that in your position. Uh, but I think <laughs> I was only there for a year. So I think I, I, I got a bit of a glimpse of the ways in which you get wrapped up in the academy in these, um, you lose perspective and, and these things become uh, all consuming and you have dreams of your teeth falling out and when you can sleep and otherwise you're not able to sleep and you know all sorts of crazy things. So for me, it was, you know, the gym was what kept me sane in grad school and I was beginning to realize like, oh wow, without these workouts, like everything people have said about mental health in, in the academy would be true for me too. Um, so similarly to DC, you know, like people drink a lot, things like that. You know, there's a lot of self-medicating happening. So anyway, all that to say, um, I was beginning to realize that while I'd had a ton of fun and I was very grateful to do it, I was ready to get back into the quote unquote real world. And so I, since DC was what I had been kind of specialized for, um, I decided to head back this way. And I had an initial thought of, that I might do full-time writing, um, work on a book project. Uh, certain things didn't pan out related to that. And then I had been in conversation with some people in the Trump administration. And they, um, yeah, so some friends of mine who were lawyers inside the Trump White House uh, basically said, you'd be a good fit, um, which was true, I think, and that there were some opportunities for me. And I ended up being the White House liaison at the Environmental Protection Agency for the final months of the administration. And I also got to help with some speech writing there. And that was a really remarkable experience. And it's one that is going to shape my thinking for a long time. I would say I'm probably in some sense continuously processing it and will be for the next year or so probably before. I think I probably need to be out of it for about twice as long as I was in it. To, to have come to some final conclusions about yeah. what I really learned from it. And then uh, I've ended up as the managing editor at the American Conservative. So this is not, this is a somewhat unexpected move for me. I had not been planning to come back to conservative media. Um, as I think I said a few minutes ago, my concern the first time was that it felt like I was writing for other writers and that it was kind of detached from the purpose of a kind of ideological um, political machine like that. I think that that can be true, but I think that the Trump years and the effort to develop a post-Trump Republican party and kind of what the future of conservatism is has opened up a door for these sorts of media jobs to be more meaningful again, and not sort of a kind of naval gazy DC project. So my hope, at least, I mean, that's why I took the job. Um, the American conservative is really known for two things, a resistance to adventurism abroad. Um, it was founded to protest the invasion of Iraq and to say before anyone else was saying it, this is a bad idea, uh, or at least before anyone else was saying it on the right. And also, it's known for its emphasis on localism amongst the kind of nationally recognized conservative publications. Uh, it's probably the most consistently localist um, brand of conservatism or Main Street conservatism, not in the Chamber of Commerce sense, but in like small town America sense. And so as the Republican Party or as the conservative American conservative movement broadly construed goes through what I hope is a realignment um, this seems like a great place to be at the American Conservative. And it's giving me a chance to write, not just to other writers, though other writers certainly read it, but to 
um, the country a little bit, or to, I mean, to its readership in particular, but like, it's a magazine that gives me permission to have a really clear idea of the kind of person I'm talking to when I'm writing. And I, don't, I sometimes probably am getting away from that, but, um, you know, it's easy as a writer to get self-indulgent and kind of write your inside jokes for your friends. But I'm trying to write for essentially our parents and our parents' friends, right? People who are countercultural for religious reasons and are building something, who recognize the need to, to build institutions and build parallel society and um, recognize that the direction the country's going is not ideal and are trying to do something about it. And so I see my kind of role in DC broadly construed and, and for the foreseeable future as do whatever it takes, be all things to all men to create space for those kinds of communities, whether it's the one, you know, um, around your family in Bend or the, my parents' classical school. So that, that's sort of why I'm in DC still, because I think most people should probably go home. Like I think, <laughs> I think the trend to send all of America's talented young people to five cities, is pretty bad and self, you know, self-defeating. And, uh, but someone's gotta make sure that there's still space for rebuilding culture at the local level. Gotcha. Okay. That was, that was great. That was awesome. <laughs> there was a, it gave me a lot of questions. Okay. So a couple, couple clarifying questions just to make sure that we're all on the same page when we're thinking about some of the, the some of the approaches you were taking. So when you refer to the, the Academy, are you using that as a term to describe kind of the philosophical hoity-toity, so to speak, of kind of higher education institutions from an academic standpoint, or are you using that more specifically? Yeah, more specifically, because I think okay. 30 years ago, the Academy would have been a great choice. Okay. And, and when you say it, the Academy, you're referring to? Yeah. So let me, let me define that real quick. For, but first I'll say like 30 years ago, it'd been a great choice. 50 years ago, it'd been one of the most fun places to be on the planet. And, and, and before that, even more so. Like, actually, I think it's just the decline narrative is pretty clear for me on that stuff. So when I say the academy now, I don't mean academia. I don't mean getting paid to read and teach, which still sounds cool. Um, I mean the institutional structure, now largely administrative. Um, universities are incredibly top heavy now. And faculty do not make up the majority of the staff, right? Most major research universities have way more, you know, if you count grad students who are being underpaid to do most of the labor and the bureaucracy the of, of, you know, secretaries and dean, like sub-deans and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, the, it's, these things have become, especially the major prestigious universities have become hedge funds with small think tanks attached to them. And then some sort of weird internship program that they call grad school. They're uh, their kind of own internal intellectual bureaucracies. In yeah. And they behave, you know, they, they, they obey all the same rules of bureaucracy that the federal government does too. Uh, there are certain kind of iron laws of how institutional culture develops and, and process culture develops. Uh, and people want to protect their turf, right. And, and maintain status. And that's, that's become the game. So, yeah. So my objection or at least caution, I'm not gonna rule it out. I know myself too well. Uh, a friend of mine calls, calls grad school uh, the ex-girlfriend who you can't stop thinking about. Um, <laughs> you keep wondering, maybe it'd be good to get back together. It's like, there is a reason you broke up. You should, you should stay broken up. Uh, but you still, you know, you wonder. You, you, just, you just wonder. Um, you, had, you, you had such nice moments. And you just kinda, <laughs> so I, and the caution now extends from, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do it large or at least what anyone the idea of academia that draws people to it is not not the reality itself at all and so and this is even getting ahead of like questions of cancel culture or or political correctness or anything like that like that's all secondary 
in my I've, mind too. Yes. It is, yep. it is broken institutionally first. And then those are symptoms of it. Like, I think, um, I'm inclined to take the most cynical read on all of those things, generally speaking. Uh, most people aren't true believers. They're just in a status competition with each other in a bureaucratic environment that rewards certain kinds of histrionics. And so that's what we're seeing. And then it has trickle down effects because these are the institutions that shape our elite class, especially elite, elite media class, right? Um, the academy speaks to the rest of the country via the New York Times or, or Vox.com or whatever, or Jezebel or I don't, does anyone read? I don't know. I don't know what people read anymore on in that direction. Um, but it, it all is kind of one big structure of um, either status development or reputation laundering or, and therefore uh, it's high stakes because you can lose status and you can lose reputation. And, and so that's kind of actually why it's so warped and weird. And it is not at all the ivory tower anymore, right? It used to be this idea that like you are in a pseudo monastic way cut off from real life so that you can read about the eternal things, the permanent things and think about these things. And the detachment was the point because that was the place to reflect uh and now the detachment is just disconnect from like lived reality and it makes itself heard a lot through its alumni in in our kind of institutional establishment media complex yeah yeah no it's as you were as you were talking describing it the first thought i had was i think you can find common ground, right? Regardless of your political leaning, right? I think people our age in general actually can find common ground on relative to that perspective on higher education, mm -hmm. um, which has been kind of in the rumblings for the last, you know, probably at least eight years. And I'm sure it's, you know, not to say people weren't bringing it up before then, but I think like our, um, it even started with like some of the Silicon Valley success and stuff, right? More and more young people are saying, Hey, this is kind of ridiculous. Uh, I'm not learning anything practical or helpful or substantive. And on top of that, the institutions weren't even doing a good job of making a connection between what is, you know, and has been described, you know, as maybe more uh, fantastical or imaginary or philosophical or thoughtful and communicating how um, how substantive and important that can be in addition to the reality component. And so they weren't even, you, you know, they weren't bringing value in from, from our kind of generation's perspective in, in either uh, sphere. <laughs> right. People got lied to. They got told everyone needed to go, call, go to college and get a degree. I mean, the degree became uh, a stand in. I mean, you can, there's a lot of chicken and egg components to this, right? Does the college degree emerge as universally necessary before or after high school diplomas cease to mean as much signaling wise, right? Um, yeah. Do high schools deteriorate after everyone starts going to college because they can and the colleges can do the remedial work or, um, or do the colleges become expected to do remedial work because no one's learning anything in high school? Uh, I don't know which comes first there. Uh, I don't know whether employers were tracking for college degrees just because it was an easy way to assess at, at a certain point, assess kind of like um, work ethic and, and intelligence or whether it became a necessary signal for in general, like uh, just maybe it was too hard to sort through people with high school diplomas or not. Um, but yeah, that's totally upended the kind of the labor market in pretty well, especially because of the import, the uh, also expansion of, of low wage labor via immigration levels and things like that, you, you create a kind of dual um, to, yeah, you undercut the possibility of a kind of native um, low wage, low skill labor, uh, Yeah, you know, so. Yep. Yep. Okay. So if, and, and I'm going to circle back to this in a, 
a little bit later in terms of the the big picture that I want to talk about in terms of shifting focuses, but or shifting trajectories. But one of the questions, kind of along that journey, that I was that I wanted to ask is if if you were concerned about getting sucked into kind of the academy and the the mess that it is mentally and emotionally, et cetera, right? Why are you not concerned about that happening with kind of a voluntary <laughs> exposure um, to politics and certainly the politics that we know today, which I think is one of the main issues um, that I think most people have with politics is that it's pretty messed up <laughs> and yeah. there are very few, if any people that can be respected in the field and most of the people that champion a particular individual are, um, you know, either lying to themselves or championing them for the sake of not, you know, championing somebody else. And there's, uh, you know, there's kind of a, a lack of uh, true, I would say true value, and then also kind of even veracity <laughs> across the board. So I'm curious, like why you see one versus the other path not having the, the same trap? I think the problems with politics are more obvious okay. to everyone, including the participants, which makes it slightly more honest, right? Okay. The, liar, okay. the liar who tells you he's lying to you is being honest in some sense, <laughs> right? There's a meta-honesty here. Uh, I, I, I do think that's one way to put it, is that there's a meta-honesty to, to DC politics. And right now, right in particular right now that in the consensus moments so there was like a bush consensus around the invasion of iraq there were there was an obama consensus at various points where the party establishments were both at their peak of control and and this is gross simplification one thing you learn the longer you're involved in political conversations in dc is that they are constantly relitigating re Ten, like about a deck every decade seems to have repeat conversations. Yeah. Um, we have an incredibly short national attention span. We have an incredibly short attention span here in the city as well. Um, and so I don't want to pretend uh, that these are all like literally historically true, but they're kind of the way people operate. It's, it's the mental map they have is that there was this time when politics basically looked like a live production of the West Wing TV show or something, right? That's what they thought they were doing. Mm -hmm. They thought everyone was playing nice, polite um, politicking, deliberation, right? Uh, and they weren't. Um, there was an establishment or there was, I mean, call it, you know, an elite class, an establishment, whatever. Uh, the city was, it was a lot of self-dealing. It was a lot of self-serving, but there was a sort of united front and it looked real polite and seemed, except it wasn't. Again, it's the funny simplifications or everything's nicer in retrospect, right? Like Bush's reputation got totally whitewashed <laughs> in, in comparison to Trump. But at the time he was also Hitler, right? <laughs> and the next guy will be Hitler too. So it, that, it's that forever. Um, but essentially, I think that there's a degree to which the obvious dysfunction makes real reform possible. This is probably delusion. Um, I'm probably just a misanthrope who should just go hide in a cabin in the woods or something. But uh, there's 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 this there's a sense in my the reason I'm here in part is because the fact that everything is chaotic and weird and the seams are showing is good, right? It's not, none of this is new. It's just finally, we're finally able to talk about it and it's finally visible to more and more people. And as it becomes visible to more and more people, then perhaps there's an opportunity to actually exercise kind of popular sovereignty and, um, or even just the you know, use the federal system that we have, right? States retain a certain degree of political autonomy despite all the years and years and years of centralization we've done. Um, there just, there seems like there are opportunities that would not be 
available otherwise under a more polite administration or under a in a less chaotic time because the chaos is just a sign that the whole system's not in lockstep with itself right now which means there's space to maneuver and so um, you know i and a bunch of other people here in this city are trying to capitalize on that um but we may be deluding ourselves and thinking that we won't just get co-opted into the existing structures. Uh, the right move may be, again, uh, to, you know, that's why I'm somewhat confident that I'm, why I'm pretty confident that I'm at the right place. Like, right, the right move may be localism. The right move may be going somewhere else, building smaller institutions elsewhere. Uh, but it does seem like someone needs to fight for space. And the administrative state or the kind of the overgrown federal bureaucracy is a part of life now. And so is the deficit. So is like so are a bunch of things that traditionally we're seeing as the the problem. And it's not to say that they haven't caused enormous problems and won't still cause enormous problems. But if you think about, say, this COVID relief bill, um, is it financially irresponsible to cut checks for $1,400 for most people? Probably, but that is a tiny fraction of what is essentially a corporate bailout to other parts of the national economy. And also a continuous, you know, when did we, when was the first Gulf War? I mean, really just the Cold War. Like we're always funneling money into the military industrial complex, into the security state. Like these are not, you know, the, the $1,400 check might be too little too late, right? Maybe we should have been sending these checks last summer. Um, but it is a drop in the bucket <laughs> compared to the, the other problems going on. So I think that's sort of one of the other opportunities is that there's a certain pragmatism that comes with everything being ugly is you can now be cynical. Uh, you're getting, we're able to get rid of some of the idealism that I think got in the way of prudent, prudent statecraft. Sure. Okay. So when you are, when you were kind of considering the shift and obviously you have a little bit of hindsight, obviously you'll have more and more hindsight over time, but what was the, what was like the scariest for lack of a better term, uh, aspect of kind of deciding to make a switch from what you had planned to pursue for however many years? Which transition in particular? So the transition from being interested, it would have happened while you were at, uh, at getting your master's in Chicago, the transition from, hey, I'm 80% sure I want to kind of go into academia and be involved and, you know, maybe teach and that sort of thing versus kind of the, actually, I'm going to try and play a more active, quote unquote, realistic role in trying to shape something, uh, you know, through my work. Yeah, I mean, it was actually pretty it was relatively straightforward because it seemed to map on to what i was studying since okay. i was studying political theory and since i had begun to focus particularly on the question of human responsibility and freedom in technological society and technology in this sense it's it's, it's a idiosyncratic academic use i want to include bureaucracy, the modern bureaucratic state in that kind of technology. So like constitutional legal systems, state, state bureaucracies, those are all forms of technology as well, just in this, you know, in the same way that your computer, or your phone is that they are, um, kybernetic control mechanisms. Uh, they're supposed to order reality for human convenience. And the problem is it has, we've increasingly not ordered reality for human convenience. We've allowed our ordering to get it kind of beyond ourselves scale at scale. And then we've started to treat them like they're alien from us. And there's a certain acceleration at the school of thought that says they are like, we somehow opened a door to <laughs> let, to let through something, um, that is sort of just technological, necessity, right? Or something like that. Um, I think that's an interesting line of thinking, especially 
as a Christian trying to map it on to kind of spiritual warfare. But I don't think that's true. I think that we as human beings are given sub creator power, um, you know, in, in our capacity as Imago Dei in the image of God, what we do, what we say matters and we can build things that are lifelike. I don't think we're ever going to get strong AI. Um, but that, all that to say though, is it doesn't leave our, it might leave our control, but it doesn't leave our responsibility. And it doesn't leave our capacity. It might leave our capacity for now, right? We may have become, we, we may be diminished. We may have degenerated to a point at which we are outstripped by our creations. And I think that's kind of where we're at. If we look around, we've been outstripped by our economic system um, that we've tried to create that, you know, initially again for human convenience, but increasingly a self-serving, self-perpetuating machine. Um, the same is true of our government, the same is true of a lot of our computer technology, things like that. So in reflecting on all of that, um, the choice sort of became the academy would be a mode of writing this all out. And it could be comfortable. I think, I mean, you can, it's harder and harder to do well, but it's possible. You know, very lucky you can you can win the academic lottery and get a good professorship somewhere and be taken care of. So that would have been one way to do it. But the convictions that I was increasingly coming under in all my reading and research and writing, thinking about these things, was that until it becomes clear who has power and responsibility over these things, people just need to try to take it, right? The, the people who are convicted of the need for human responsibility are going to then have to accrue the power to exercise that responsibility. And I mean, I'm just a writer. I'm not in a position to you know, I don't accrue things that look like power to most people. I'm not going to be wealthy. I, I'm not, I'm not like in charge of anything, but um, it's an opportunity to remind people that they are positioned somewhere with some kind of power or, or at least, with, well, power and responsibility are reciprocal to each other. And so whichever one they recognize themselves as having, they need to take take up the other one. So, and I think generally speaking right now, we have plenty of power, but it's on the loose, right? No one's taking responsibility for it. Um, and so the kind of pressing need civilizationally is for the uh, people who recognize the problem to take the wheel, because right now no one's driving. Okay. So in your role and kind of with where you're sitting today and having, you know, kind of recently taken, well, I guess very recently, <laughs> uh, taken on this new managing editor role, what are the things that you, ex obviously there's always unexpected, but what are the things that you expect to learn from your position and through being on at least the current path that you're on and will be on for the, you know, foreseeable two, three, four, five, however many year future? I think this role and where it, the community that it embeds me in further, I was already sort of in it, which is why the role kind of came to me, is the chance to see if the, if the rethinking can be done quickly, right? If a political solution, a DC-centric solution is possible. Um, so the question everyone on everyone's mind is if there are enough committed, driven people who agree on enough over the next four to eight years and are spread out throughout the city in interesting nodes and can kind of both execute certain policy ideas, but also provide the intellectual basis for that, think through the things that, you know, think through the questions that we're approaching and, and give people frameworks within which to assess their own policy work, but also um, also sell things, right? Uh, rhetoric is not, there's philosophy and then there's rhetoric, sophistry, right? They're, they're, both, they're both there. There's, there's the seeking the truth 
and then there's also the selling selling what's needed to be sold <laughs> speaking beautifully for the public so i think what i feel at least that the, the kind of thing to be learned is right now um, is just how how much can be done how soon um, I'm sorry, that's probably not, you're probably thinking specifically about the, the role itself and the role itself is stuff I've done before, right? Editing, um, managing writers, like those are all things that are pretty straightforward and don't change much from context to context. So I, I don't think that that's kind of the growth area. The growth area is more um, what can, what can one particular magazine and a, and a, and a few editors at that magazine do in concert with people on Capitol Hill, people in a think tank over there, people you know in a university over there. And, you know, what, what is that platoon to use the, the little platoon to use the Edmund Burke phrase, or just what is that kind of symposium of friends, right? Uh, a conspiracy of friendship, right? What can that accomplish? Uh, at the scale, right? At a DC scale, that's the question. And who knows, we're probably all just deluding ourselves, but it's a lot more fun than thinking nothing can be done. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so as uh, yes, if you have a red 1984, this is true. Uh, so, okay, so you and the group that you, uh, the group that sounds uh, more intense than it is, but you and the, the connections and the conversations that you are having with a variety of different people and a variety of different contexts, all in a kind of general pursuit of what you've been describing in terms of having a conservative, but, you know, I think even better, a, a wholesome impact on where, where one can on the political scene and 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 I think on the which is to say the cultural scene at large as as well, right? That's kind of the perspective and the um, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but like the bubble that you are existing within, right? And that you are running within and running towards. For those of uh, you know, for people and for young listeners or old listeners, right? For the for the people that exist outside of that bubble, right? Which is not to say they don't care about what's going on, right? They're just as likely to be equally impassioned by, you know, a news article <laughs> or something that has been brought to their attention through social media or something their friends told them. Like, I think one of the things that at least has been expressed, whether that's only because it's amplified due to social media or not, is kind of neither here nor there in some ways because it causes impact and change on a societal level, right? So, which is going back to it, people are impassioned, right? So for those people that don't exist inside this bubble, right? And they're working their tech jobs, they're working their engineering jobs, they're working their marketing jobs, they're working like whatever it is, right? They're pursuing their life and they still have this passion as a function of their existence as a citizen in the world that we live in today. What are the things that you would say to them? And I would say this irrespective of, and I'm asking, I would like to ask this irrespective of political leaning, which I think right. gets us into trouble all the time unnecessarily right so like what are the what are the things that you would ask of them in the uh, i don't know if management's the right term but uh, in, in in the overseeing of their passion and their engagement with you know this bubble so to speak as a topic in that in if, as a function of their daily and or you know weekly lives what are the things, you know, like, how should they be thinking about it? What are the wholesome and healthy ways from your perspective uh, that these, uh, that the rest of us <laughs> should be engaging with these topics, right? And I think that's, that's a really important question because I think that that is what dictates long-term or even substantive, you know, change and, and which is to say, hopefully progress in, in some trajectory or another, but what would your, you know, what would you ask of them as they consider these things? What would you say to them? You know, and I say ask because I think that you need them, right? So that's why I'm phrasing yeah. it that way. <laughs> I would say, first, I'd summarize the project insofar as there is a unified one as the recognition 
that our systems should amplify the human person, human humanity, not overshadow it. So I think for people working within what, from my perspective, looks like the peripheries of the system, but I'm sure have their own nodes of um, centralized power, uh, certainly San Francisco does, things like that. They should look around themselves and ask where, where is the human person being affirmed in this and where is the human person being up, you know, um, upended from its place? Uh, where is human dignity being suppressed? And there are the really obvious ways, right? Like slave labor in the developing world, but there's also less obvious ways like, well, pretty obvious still too, like wage slavery in an Amazon factory where they, instead of giving you a raise, give you, they gamify the, the factory system. Um, so you get fake points for having loaded boxes faster. Um, but then even people making a lot of money are very, not well, <laughs> no one ever thinks they make a lot of money. That's the stupid thing about America. Everyone pretends to be middle-class. Um, but even people who are doing very well for themselves in a kind of high value part of the country can ask themselves this question, like looking around, where am I participating in a system that is ignoring people's humanity? And how are ways in which I can make sure that human beings are taking responsibility for those structures of power? Um, and what, what kind of power am I wielding myself? Right? What do I have authority over? And am I exercising authority or am I simply allowing myself to be a cog in the machine, in the larger machine? Because you need to exercise authority, right? You need to author, you need to um, assert your own human dignity in your relationship with other human beings, as opposed to yourself just being, like you dehumanize yourself when you're dehumanizing the person that you are in some sort of power relationship with. Um, and so that's true of managers, that's true of, I mean, if you work in software, software, and let's say you're developing apps, and I mean, most kind of, seems like a lot of digital tech right now is based on the attention economy and how much it can manipulate viewers into like maintaining eyes on, eyes on ads, because we have a opt out internet system. That's just a question to ask yourself, right? Are you comfortable with that? Um, you know, I think JD Vance likes to talk about how um, some of the best neurologists in the world work for Facebook and Google on making sure people can just want to keep scrolling. Uh, that's an obvious question about whether that's a good use of their attention and brain power to do that, to steal everyone else's attention and brain power. But an equally interesting one is like how much of coding is cleaning up someone else's spaghetti code. And then what are you, what are you even cleaning up that spaghetti code for, right? Uh, is, the pro is the final product something that amplifies humanity or is it something that sort of diminishes us further into kind of consumer zombies that just perpetuate, big line goes up, GDP, yay, cool, whatever. Okay, so the challenge to that that comes to mind Please, is, <laughs> well, is the, well, the reason that the systems, right, or the system is in the position of power and influence, which it is uh, in today's world, is because of the both physical and realistic power that it that it influences and then also the economic power that it that it influences right and so the the challenge that comes to mind is taking the example of someone that's you know uh, working on some uh, the neurologist right that's working for for you know microsoft or facebook or whoever right and kind of the the machine that's operating there with the sole goal in air quotes uh to you know, create higher revenue, right? And, and drive sales. And at, at, in theory, at the expense of, you know, humanity or, or one's humanity. And the 
the challenge that that I think kind of automatically flows from that is that is is I don't know if the question is the right term, but at least the concern, it, it, to put it politely or lightly, is that that will that you know that machine will continue to exist, right? And those people, again, this is abstract, right? But those people will continue to develop and you know develop and amass money and therefore power and therefore influence and which we've seen in you know like even to, to ground it right we've seen that in our elections right we're spending bajillions of dollars on ads bajillions of dollars on you know all kinds of different influence and we saw that with you know even outside you know uh, outside entities getting involved like russia right um and and so how is stepping outside of that game actually setting you up for you know at least comparative power and i think more substantively influence yeah no i don't want to let me clarify i'm not saying everyone needs to check out right i'd be very i'd be a huge hypocrite if i were because <laughs> as i said yeah it, to take certain parts of my inclinations to another step is to conclude that i should go be like a farmer and have you know 10 kids or something in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> which, hey, it sounds really nice and maybe someday, Lord willing. Uh, but no, I'm actually saying people need to kind of do that philosophically within their position, right? Recognize the structures that they're a part of and then assert their humanity and take responsibility and authority for that, what they have. So I'm not saying stop being a manager. I'm saying recognize that you're a human being and you are making a choice and shaping yourself with every decision and management choice you make. And you're shaping the people under you, right? You have responsibility for their care too. Um, so it isn't it isn't cease to participate. It's remember that it isn't that it's a choice, right? Even just thinking about it and being like, I could quit, and maybe I should, but here's why I could stay, and here's what I could do to do this job better is a first step in, in just reasserting um, a degree of human responsibility in that position. And right, I mean, I think uh, to then put the paradox in, the risk is obviously, of course, that you are deceiving yourself and that you are just being co-opted by, by the larger structure. But I think we do have freedom and therefore responsibility as human beings. And so the capacity to exercise that responsibility, if we think we can, right? If you think you have the discipline to wield it correctly, to, to put a really nerdy spin on it, but I think it's appropriate talking to you just because <laughs> I know what we both grew up on. Um, it's the difference between, I used this in a blog post recently too. So that's why it's top of mind. It's the difference between Sauron's ring and the Palantirs, right? The seeing stones of Arnor, the Northern Kingdom. Um, Sauron's ring is necessarily corrupting. Boromir wants to wield it. Elrond is right when he says, no, sorry, not gonna work. The, you know, this is a weapon that is purely the enemy's weapon. His, his, his not just his power, but also his uh, essence is in it. And therefore it will overshadow you rather than you overshadowing it. The Palantirs are also corrupting for most people, right? They corrupt Saruman, who's incredibly powerful. They almost corrupt Pippin, but he's too good in heart in some sense, um, and too much of an unknown factor and hobbits are hardier than, you know, than people <laughs> expect them to be. Uh, but the Palantirs are neutral, originally neutral tools. So this sort of warpedness is a thing put on them by Sauron. And they're waiting for Aragorn to wrestle them from the grasp of the Dark Lord. That, that as the heir of Isildur, he can reassert in the, the dawn of the Age of Men, right? The Age of Elves is over. The Age of Men has come. He can reassert human dignity. And not just human dignity, but authority. Real, like, true. That's a, it's a beautiful illustration of what authority is. And say, like, no, these I am master of these. Even and over and against... Sauron, who is like by some scales 
way more powerful than he is, right? Sauron is not the devil. This is the other thing. It's in the uh, in the hierarchy of, of spiritual beings and in the Lord of the Rings, Sauron's just a, a lesser demon, actually, uh, or a lieutenant to the devil, not the devil himself. Um, so we can call him like Moloch or something, uh, or Mammon in our own context. <laughs> uh, and so, so let's say that we are, you know, suffering the dominion of Mammon and Mammon's, there's a difference between Mammon's weapons and human weapons that Mammon is dominating. Uh, mammon's tools and human tools and so what i'm hoping and, and what we should all be working towards is that we can start recognizing the difference and that the right people can exercise human authority over human tools and tear them from the grasp of mammon or moloch take your pick for those of you uh, listening on uh, Spotify or iTunes or wherever, I was smiling broadly and strongly throughout that uh, <laughs> entire, uh, I don't know if allegory is quite the right term, but uh, picture and comparison because yes, Micah is right. I very much love all of that stuff. And it's funny you bring it up because I'm actually with my sister, we uh, re read a book together and then we talk about it once a week and or one of my sisters and uh, the one we're currently reading is about tolkien and c.s lewis and the their friendship and then the philosophies that they had and then changed over time and then congruously went into their works and so it talks about all this stuff <laughs> and so uh, so okay so here's my i think final question we'll see um we're getting towards the end here but aside from escaping into these wonderful realities that men such as Tolkien and Lewis and others uh, have painted for us. <laughs> um, aside from escaping into them, how do how does one, from your perspective, kind of maintain a, a positive outlook, right? Because I think it's very easy to, you know, get caught up in a slightly more 1984 perspective, <laughs> which is like the machine is here, mammon is here, wink, whatever it is, and there's not much you can do, this sucks um you know oh for the the age before technology or whatever you want to come up with right which is like sure. like i think in one way an easy thing that people run to which is like they forget like okay before technology like you know life was you know what is it nasty brutish and short so <laughs> so i think there were some elements Excuse that me, uh, sneeze, but uh, yeah yeah continue no, exactly <laughs> no, uh, tickle aside from like you know i think it's easy to get caught up in that right and having a kind of a darker, more dank perspective on things. How do you, you know, what is, what is, what are, what are your thoughts about, like, how do you maintain positive, you know, a positive mentality and a positive outlook on life to where you're still enjoying it? Because, you know, I feel like relative to our humanity, that is such a serious element of how we need to exist in order to exist fully, which is to say humanely. Yeah, but, uh, I guess four things in order. Um, church slash God's word, friends, walks, and the gym. Actually, the, uh, I had to put the gym and, and walks in order. I'm Depends sure on where you're going on a walk. If you're going exactly, to walk in the yeah, mountains, yeah, yeah. sure. So uh, the first thing is to be reminded that you are a sinner saved by grace and that um, God is working in the world to do his will and his Holy Spirit can be active in regenerating yourself and the world. So that's a message of hope that Christ is King and is coming again. Uh, the second is community, life in community, right? Um, no human action is possible uh, alone. What's the, uh, a, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Uh, and uh, where one can go, two can go further because if one should fall, the other can pick him up. So friendships and life in community are what allow us to both accomplish things and just also we find ourselves in those that um, so much of our self-conception is based on our, is, is rooted in our relationships. Um, we are less ourselves when we are not in relationship. And then I think walks in nature are a wonderfully peaceful 
way to reacquaint yourself with your embodiedness and your place in the created order. And relatedly, the gym is a place to test yourself. And again, to reassert your embodiedness, I mean, that's a huge part of all of this is that we're increasingly detached and we treat ourselves like the same kind of digital information that we're constantly um, manipulating all day that like we reduce ourselves to sort of the mind space that we're spending online and forget that we're also an animal and that that um, corporeality shapes our reality, right? Uh, that, that, you know, so much of what we think of as being moods or states of mind are, of course, you know, rooted in your gut biochemistry at that moment, or whether you had enough sleep the night before, or, you know, all sorts of things. Um, there's a reason coffee is so nice. <laughs> so, so that's just, I think, reasserting your, the fact that you are not a meat puppet being piloted by some sort of um, mind thing that could be uploaded into the cloud someday, uh, <laughs> but, are, but are in fact body and soul that you're, you know, your central nervous system has like a bunch of endings in your gut, like this, you know, your brain, mind, soul, stomach, but, you know, to, to go back to C.S. Lewis, um, you have a head, chest, and, and, and stomach, right? And, and we live in an age of men without chests, as he said in the abolition of man. Um, but we should be, we should strive to be fully integrated, holistic, you know, human beings, healthy human beings, which means we have all three and are aware of them and that the chest can mediate between the body's needs and the aspirations of the mind. So that there, there'd be a kind of discipline. All of this, you know, everything I've talked about takes the cultivation of discipline. And one of the easiest ways to take that first step is just working out. I like that. I like that. In, uh, you know, as I was sitting in, and obviously listening and, and thinking about what we were, we've been talking about, one of the thoughts that came to mind was, I feel like the first bit of the podcast, this is just me kind of reflecting back, but first bit of the podcast um, was it, it, it felt slower and, and, and more methodical, right? And then we started talking about some of the various elements and aspects towards the, you know, the last half or like however long it's been. And it like picked up and there was like more to it. And there was, there was more um, aspiration of thought there. And I was thinking the thought that came to mind is I think it's easy for people in this journey, which, which is to tie it back to us all being on a journey. <laughs> uh, I think it's easy for, for all of us to kind of look back at the uh, kind of the elements of our past or, you know, how we got here and treat them as kind of methodical or treat them as relatively um, not boring or mundane, but kind of, uh, kind of plotting, so to speak. And it's like, oh, now what I'm doing is exciting and interesting. Or, oh, if only until I can reach tomorrow's job or the next job, that'll be, you know, engaging, interesting. And I think it's so important to, to reflect on those past elements and to understand them about others, because I think that's what sets you up to then comprehend and understand where people are at today and where you, you yourself are at today. So, um, so I just want to throw that out there as I was thinking about that as I, you know, I, I hope people are, you know, in your field and my field and people listening are like taking that time to, to reflect positively and then substantively about what I think can easily feel like something that doesn't matter. Um, and, and I think that comes to mind because one of the one of the things talked about in the book that I'm reading about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and whatnot is they they talk about how quickly we are as a as a as a society as a function of our society going back even to to their time right is we throw out the previous educational and or time periods of our existence and we focus on as if like only what we know today is like oh this is the truth right even though if you back it up you know a generation what we have now thrown out the window was considered the truth today. And it's like, why would you assume that the next generation of thought won't throw out what you've considered hardcore belief um, in science and whatever else it is um, as of today. And so 
that's why I feel like it's important to, to reflect on kind of the whole journey that which then sets you up to kind of have the continued positive conversations. So thank you for, for, for all that. Thank you for coming on. Um, it was interesting. I, I enjoyed it. I wasn't totally sure where the, the back half would go. Obviously, I knew most of the front <laughs> half. Um, but I was, I was excited. It was, uh, it was interesting and engaging. So thank you for Thanks coming for on. Thanks for having me on. That was fun. All right. I will uh, catch you all next time. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a review. We will talk to you soon. Bye.